we should just do it for like. This is Lucky to Lead. That was so good. Okay. Just drop your best one. Welcome to Lucky to Lead. You're talking shit about me? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Lucky Lucky to Lead. Lead. And we're back. Dave? I got it, baby. I like it. Feeling good? Always. Um, Episode 8. The good thing about doing your own podcast is nobody can uh, fire you. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Um, We are our own critic, which is nice. And sometimes bad, but we're going to let it fly. That's true. That's true. true. I look forward to Sunday mornings with you or evenings, whatever it is. Yeah. It's it's a good little uh, reminder that it's Sunday. Love it. Another week down. Um, Well, this week, uh, obviously, with with everything going on and the death of, of George Floyd, and the uh, the civil unrest uh, with what's been going on in the movement, um, I can tell you that I struggled to just have a regular week. Um, early on, I thought maybe we shouldn't do an episode this week, and then I recognized that that was dumb as shit. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, you know what I'm saying. Like, I think me and you've had some really great dialogue. Um, Dave, you know, you being white, me being Dominican and trying to work through like how I'm feeling. And I appreciate you reaching out to me during the week. Um, But what I I will tell you is that uh, like now is the time for the most dialogue, not for silence. And um, I think we have an opportunity to do that here. So today's guest, uh, reflective of that, is um, my sis, Wendy Yancey. Uh, she is from Sleepy Hollow. She is a police officer, um, and she's black. And uh, not only all those things, but her her family tree is very much rooted in in Sleepy Hollow's history, and has been very much on the front of these dialogues for a very long time. Um, and and uh, I'm excited to have her on and, and talk through that piece. So, uh, Wendy. What's up? Hello, hello from uh, New York, from Westchester County, New York. How are you? <laughs> We're pumped to have you. Welcome. Uh, are you ready? Hi, Dave. And welcome. Thank you. I feel like I'm bringing part of my lives together here. and I'm, <laughs> We're meshing. We're blending. <laughs> yeah. And I'm worried to see what's going to happen with, like, the different brands of crazy I associate myself with. <laughs> This might be explosive. (laughs) (laughs) We hope so. (laughs) In a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right, Wendy. So um, lucky to lead episode eight. Um, We we usually start with, what are you what are you up to now? What am I up to? Current day. Current day. This part of your life. This part of your journey. However you thinking through it. So uh, current day, it's it's an emotional, it's been an emotional week. It's been a very emotional week, not to say that the other incidents that have happened uh, over the years haven't uh, hurt, but I think this incident with George Floyd hurt a little more because of the exploitation it had with the media and, and us being able to watch it firsthand. You know, I, I remember being younger in the Amadou Diallo case, and then you hear about, um, you know, just other incidents. There was an incident even in Austin, you know, back in 98, I was in high school. And those are things you kind of, you had to wait until the Sunday paper came out to read about it in the Sunday paper. Um, News 12 probably didn't even exist to capture all the things locally like it does now. So, you know, you would hear through the grapevine. You, My father, who was involved and he would he still gets a paper every morning he buys an actual newspaper every Mm -hmm. single morning um but back then that's how we found out so i think with this incident and with the media and everything everyone having cameras between storefronts cameras in your hand you know cameras on phones cameras on gadgets cameras on cars officers with cameras there's cameras everywhere and just to watch um this man, despite what kind of man he was, 
despite his background, despite everything um, that he did prior to that, I think just to watch him um, just live their life the way they did and in front of other people, not just people standing there, but people watching from home, his family watching from home. You know, so so that hurts. So that that's why I am today. It's it's sad. It's still sad, um, and it makes me want to do my job better. You know, every day I want to do it better for a different reason. But it just it makes me want to do it better so that we aren't viewed as or just as just like the officers that were involved in those cases and similar cases. Yeah, I uh, I think it's an interesting time. I think it's an interesting time to be a police officer. I think it's an interesting time to be black. I think it's an interesting time in our country because I don't think this is a hard decision, but I don't have everybody else's experience. Um, you know, to me, I, I, for per, I actually wouldn't have thought of having a police officer on here because I don't necessarily... I've I've never been raised with the thought that police officers are leaders. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in like a fuck you way, Wendy. I'm saying that like uh that's just never been my consciousness. Yeah. But neither was I. You know, we didn't grow up too far from one another, you know, a block block or two away. And, you know, growing up in the, the most what's considered urban area of the village. And when I was growing up, you know, on Cortland Street in what was North Tarrytown at the time, um, that area of the village was predominantly Black and Puerto Rican and then Dominican. But it was all brown faces. So, you know, growing up then, you know, you didn't like the police. You know, we didn't we didn't like police officers. I didn't have any officers in my family. You know, I didn't have family members who were police officers when I was younger. You know, I had one very close family friend through my father who was the police chief. Um, and he was the one of the first black African American police chiefs um throughout Westchester County in New York State. So, you know, was that influential? No. At the time, no, because I was a, a knucklehead teenager, you know. <laughs> Uh, more running from him as my best friend's father so that we wouldn't get caught doing, you know, the stupid st stuff we did. But even when he told me to take the test and, and he was the one that encouraged me to take the test. And then I had a cousin who became an officer, another black, black officer who then he encouraged me. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to because I didn't view officers as leaders. We did not see the officers in town until we needed them until someone was sick or until there was a fight or a domestic or a stabbing or whatever the case may be. You didn't see an officer until you got pulled over in your car. So there wasn't any influence when I was growing up. Dave, um, why did I take the test? Yeah. You know, I, I took the test because I was encouraged to and still did not know why I wanted to be a police officer. So I, it, it, like, honestly, did not know why. Did I want to make change? I did, but I didn't know how yet. I didn't know how. I didn't know how influential this position could be, and it took many years to learn how to use it as a tool. Dave, what, what, uh, how do you think through that question, Dave? Just like your eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think you know my. I've been raised and I think I've been around and I don't, I didn't appreciate what cops do uh, as much as I do now um, that, you know, um, you know, I don't know, Wendy, I have a military background. So I was a uh, active duty military for about seven years. And really my um, reasoning behind it was to go to the Naval Academy to play lacrosse. So that's why I, I got into the military thing. I had no background. My family wasn't there. Um, and, and really, I think I've appreciated more uh, since I've gotten out of the military of what I did and the people around me and the young men and women that I had was fortunate enough to lead for, you know, those seven years that I was there. Um, 
so I think, you know, my background obviously is different. Um, and, uh, I, I don't have that feeling that, you know, when you see cops, it's a bad thing, um, where I do see how that can, you know, I think for me this week and these past two weeks have been a lot of listening and a lot of thinking of what, how I can a help the solution and be um, put myself as best I can in other people's shoes to realize what they're going through and not be as judgmental or as, you know, quick to think I, I already have the answer. Or I know what the answer is. So um, it's been um, a reflective week, I would say would probably be the best way. And, you know, certainly um, trying to uh, just offer my support because I don't walk in, in your shoes and I don't know what you're thinking. So I think that's important piece is just listening. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has been a common theme on the show has been listening as a leader. Um, yeah. And, and I, I also think from my perspective, Wendy, as a police officer, I think it's changed. I think you mentioned, you know, you only saw them when bad things happened. Right. And that was the correlation when you see a cop, something bad happened where I think now it's so community relation and out there with a presence. And mm -hmm. you can probably speak to that more of how important making that connection is. And again, another theme that we've seen on this show is that connection and relationship that if you do see cops and police officers or law enforcement in that light of the relationship building, I think the, the end of that is, is a better, better policing. Um, and you can probably speak to that way more. And that's just kind of the, the, the average Joe's eyes to, to what I envision policing to be, but you can certainly add to that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things grow, growing up, my grandmother was, um, and even though she, she wasn't a police officer, she was a, what they called a female matron. Because back in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, they didn't really have female police officers. So she was hired by North Tarrytown in the 70s and 80s, where, you know, if they locked up a female, she's who they called in to search and then watch the female because they didn't have female police officers back then. Um, again, but she wasn't a police officer. I didn't see her put on a uniform. I didn't see her walk out and, and represent the officers that I've seen walking up and down the street. I think as time went on, and, and I have to credit um, retired Chief Jimmy Warren, who was from the community, and I think he demanded change. And I, I was able to see that towards the, probably the, as I started to go on to college and even come home to decide to be a police officer, where he was demanding that all officers start engaging more with the community. Um, his goal was to mix the department so that the department could reflect the community and reflect the community that it serves so that officers can sympathize with community members and empathize with them because there's an understanding. He created what we have in the department called um, PWT, which that acronym stands for Park, Walk and Talk. And the object of PWT was we had to get out four and five times during the shift out of our car. Because it was not just riding around for eight hours with your window up and ignoring the community. You had to get out and you had to call on the radio that you were PWT in certain areas of the village because he wanted you out. And that meant park, walk, talk, park your car, walk around, talk to the people, walk into the bodegas walk into the, the bakery, you just walk up and down the street and have a conversation. And he created that so that we can open up and reach community members on a different level. Um, I think it started to die down in certain areas, um, just nationwide. Officers may be becoming scared, people becoming scared, a disconnect between officers and, and community members. And that's when Coffee with a Cop then came. And coffee with a cop, the main goal, people think it's just, let's have donuts, let's have baked, you know, baked goods, and let's have coffee, and, and let's talk. No, that, that was developed so that officers can go down to areas of the community that they don't usually go to, they don't usually sit in, 
and deal with people that they don't usually deal with on positive levels. And usually they deal with them on a negative level. But now you can sit, you can talk. I don't have a uniform on, or maybe I do. And there are many officers there engaging and having conversation. I love coffee with a cop. I'm so for coffee with a cop. And I think it ha if it's utilized the right way, if it's utilized in neighborhoods that don't usually see police officers. Um, for example, in Sleepy Hollow, you know, and Ronnie will tell you, 100 College Arms, 126 Valley Street, Cortland Street, where I grew up, you know, a lot of the residents there are a little hesitant in, in coming to the police. So that's, that's my goal. My goal is to try and get our officers to engage more with the what we consider the more urban community in Sleepy Hollow. I love I, I first of all I love that and um Dave perked up when you said coffee with the cop because anything involving coffee he's basically <laughs> I'm in. sign me up. It's not always Starbucks or like Dunkin' Donuts. Sometimes it's it's you know it's Bustello, it's it's <laughs> sign him up. Dave doesn't give a shit what kind of no. coffee no, if it gets caught in your teeth, I'm in. The Ecuadorians in town make very good coffee. Let me tell you, there's one Ecuadorian bakery I go to, um, and they're very sweet. We we sit in there all the time, and it's funny that you know you you think you're just going to eat and 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 mingle with with your coworker for you know ten minutes, twenty minutes, maybe thirty, and have a little you know, breath of fresh air away from everything. And you don't realize the connection you're actually making just by sitting there. You know, I may just say hi to the worker behind the register, but you truly don't realize the connection and how they feel knowing that you're sitting in their establishment and they, they get to know you. They, you know, they, they trust you. They see a different side of you. You're laughing, you're smiling. And that's what you want to see. Wendy, I think I keep going back in my mind of, you know, uh, uh, police officers often referred to as a civil servant, right? Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, our show is about leadership. And I think those two intersect very well because we've talked about, um, being kind of a servant to your people. And I think that that connection there of maybe if we got back to more of that, of being, taking the mindset of I'm a civil servant rather than, um, an authoritative position, which you are in, of course, but you got to, again, blend those two. But I think if we got more towards the civil servant piece to this, maybe um, that could, again, the, the coffee with cops and, and, and the, the, the park walk and talk, I think are all pieces that we've touched on in just a different capacity on the show of how to create that relationship and trust and bond between those who you're serving. Right. And I think uh, that's really an, an important piece. So that civil servant kind of idea uh, kind of resonates with me. And I, I'm sure, you know, you feel that same same uh, purpose driven kind of of being a servant to your people. Absolutely. And and, and again, I have to credit, um, you know, retired Chief Jimmy Warren, who instilled that instilled that in many of the officers that came up under him and we don't have many left in my department but there are some left and one of the things that he did harp on was that we were not hired to solely pull cars over and write tickets all day you know that that's not what policing is it's not making arrests all day and seeing and competing on who can have the most tickets who can have the most arrest numbers you know and and really just damaging someone's life for the moment you know you don't realize it, it may be a parking ticket it may be a stop sign but you know you truly just ruined that person's day for a moment and i'm not saying we should not write i'm not saying we should not arrest what i'm saying is the goal when you put that uniform on should not be you know how many tickets can i get today how many arrests can i make today my goal what i know when i put that uniform is you know who can i speak to today and that's what it should be. His, his goal, which became ultimately our goal, who was under him, was get out, talk to the people, and communicate. You have to get out and communicate with the people and let them know that we're not just officers. We're not just here to write you tickets. We're here to help you. 
Because your biggest source of information is going to come from the same community you serve. You know, it's not, it's not going to come from what we call a CI, <laughs> you know, you know, it's not going to come from that person looking to get their charges dropped because they're going to snitch and give you that information. No, your biggest source of information, and I know my biggest source of information, I could be standing in the middle of, of a brawl, the brawl ends, and my phone will vibrate in my pocket. And by the time I get to my car, I'm looking at my text message, and it's someone from a, a, an apartment window saying, Wendy, the person that did it is X, Y, and Z, you know, and, and they have my number. And that's even the connect. There are people in this village that have my, I don't care. I give my phone number to everybody. They have my number. Yeah. And I and think I just that making helps. that, making that connection and, and developing that relationship. And the other kind of thing that's resonating is the, the, the motto for police officers is protect and serve. Right? That's right. Maybe, maybe if we flip that um, and it was serve and protect, I don't know, I, that could be the impetus for a little bit of the change that I think, you know, the, the mindset from both the police, but also I think more importantly, the people that you're serving, if it's serve and then protect rather than mm -hmm. protect and serve, even though it's very little and it might be, you know, for me, I think as a leader, um, you know, what you're putting out there, your brand and, and your standards, I think are so important so that people can make that connection. They mm -hmm. see it. It's like a billboard, right? Um, right. So I think, you know, oftentimes like that uniform alone uh, turns people off, right? But if that, that connection can, can change, I think that will move forward that needle a bit. That's right. Um, when uh, <clears throat> everything you're talking about is, is so much about your influence in, in Sleepy Hollow, and I think that's what you lead with and makes you so effective. But that influence is something that you've built over a very long time. Yeah. Um, and, and whether you know it or not, like I, you are a leader in Sleepy Hollow. I think people look to you. Um, you know, my mom calls you when people are barbecuing. She doesn't like the way it smells because she knows you know everybody. <laughs> you know like like you're everybody's go-to in town and i think you've built that over a very long period of time not just as a police officer but as a community member as a black woman as a student at Sleepy Hollow high school you know um so i'd like to just go back and think about like did you ever even imagine that you'd be a leader in Sleepy hollow and and if so like when did you know Never in my mind, um, because anybody who's listening to this that knows me from before you were born, Ronnie, <laughs> because see, I graduated with, with Ronnie's brother, Ralphie, I'm older, but anybody who knows me um, from growing up would, would say, oh my God, Wendy Brand became a cop. Wendy used they to. When, Wendy was. Wendy used to beat up the varsity football players. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it, it's one of those things where it's like, did they do a background check on that girl? You know. So, um, you know, I was a little bit of a wild child, I have to say. You know, but in the village, running around, getting in trouble a lot. But my influence came from my grandmother, and and it came from my grandmother's father. Um, William Williams. That's how creative they were, that the man's name was William Williams, okay? <laughs> he was so creative. That's, that's our name, Wendy. What do you... <laughs> oh, it's so creative. But he also, this man, this was a black man from uh, South Carolina who was one of, I think, I think 16 children and who moved to this village. So when people say, wow, Wendy, you're related to everyone, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of don't have a choice when your great-grandfather is one of, like, 16 kids, right? But um, he was one of the first African-Americans to own property in the village of North Chinatown. And it's the same building, the same property that my family still owns today and that my grandparents still live in today and that I grew up in and my parents grew up in and my cousins and my aunts. And, you know, just I think it was just watching and at the time, you don't realize you're watching and soaking this in, to watching how they're taking care of, you know, the block, 
how they're taking care of the neighborhood. You know, if out-of-towners came in, believe you me, they didn't stay long. Because if you came to do any damage on, on Cortland Street in North Tarrytown back then, you were ran back out of the village. These people took care of the village. So I don't, I never thought I was going to be in this position. I watched my grandmother and, and all of her friends back then um, who were all very strong Black women and Black men in the community at the time, constantly going up to board meetings. I would see her get dressed you know, in her bedroom and get dialed up and, and wonder where is she going tonight? And she'd be, I'm going to the board meeting because I have something to say. <laughs> that was, and Ronnie, you know her. So mm -hmm. you know how, but, you know, my grandmother, Henrietta Brand, who's still alive, who was just at the Black Lives uh, Matter movement yesterday in Sleepy Hollow. She was in attendance. But, you know, back in the 80s and, and 90s, she was, she was something to reckon with. And, and she made sure her presence was known and, and she kept the eye out on the police department and the mayor and let them know we're watching. We're paying attention. And I think just from watching her do that, as rebellious as I was, it planted a seed in me. And that seed didn't start to grow until after I became a cop. Once I realized that this position was powerful combined with my coaching position as a cheerleading coach. And I knew how to blend the two without making water and, 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 and oil, you know, for, for you know what I'm saying? If, if that's the term I could use to understand. You know what I mean? I knew how to make them blend nicely so that I was still able to coach at the high school and be that cheerleading coach that all these girls loved, but they didn't hate me also for being a cop. And I think I learned over the years, you know, that my biggest tool, my biggest accomplishment and, and the greater need of the community was for me to not forget my community and not forget, this is my community. This is where I live. My grandparents are still here. You know, I don't collect the paycheck and drive home and never see this place again. Wendy, I do love that you brought up your, your coaching. Um, obviously Dave and I are coaches and, we feel like we're making hopefully some small impact in the world. Maybe not today, but when those dudes become adults. Um, but for you, you got to watch it from your work to then they were mm -hmm. graduates and they were in town and, and you saw them, you know, s some of those, um, some of the influence you had has turned into more female cops in Sleepy Hollow. Um, yeah. So I'd love to think through what did leadership look like from Wendy as a coach um, and how did you, did you have to turn a switch when you put your uniform on? Is it the same style of leadership? What are the intricacies of being a leader in uniform and out of uniform? So I, I had to straddle the line just a little bit um, because, of course, not all school districts want police in their buildings. You know, they don't want police officers to see everything that's going on. They don't want us to hear everything that's going on. So here I am coaching in the same district that's in the same village where I work. So I'm going to hear and know everything. And then I have to handle it appropriately so that I, I don't mix the two in a, in a negative way. And I can, I can use it to benefit the situation. So did I have to turn the switch off um, at times? But you have to know when. And, and that took growth. You know, it takes learning and it also took experience because in the beginning, I've been an officer for almost 14 years. So it, it, it took some experience where in the beginning, I didn't know how to turn it off. I didn't know how to differentiate the two. And I would get called to the chief's office or, or the lieutenant's office at the time. And they'd say, you know, you, you got to be careful. You can't mix the two or you can't do that. So I had to learn how to mix the two properly. Wait, Wendy. I, went and, and I don't. I don't mean. I don't mean to cut you off. But which one were you not shutting off? Being a cop or being a coach? I, I wasn't shutting off being a coach. Oh. Because I had a bigger connection with them as a coach than I did as a cop. If I shut off being the coach, and always kept on being the cop, then I lost them. I lost them. I have a girl. Um, and everyone, you know, I know she wouldn't mind me mentioning her name because 
everyone knows your story. Everyone knows who she is, and they know her story. She's not shy about her story, and that's Ruby Maranta. Ruby Maranta was troubled. She became troubled due to an incident that involved her brother, where her brother was arrested by Sleepy Hollow police. And Ruby wanted nothing to do with Sleepy Hollow police and schooling at the time just was not her thing because of everyone in the village knowing what occurred between her brother and another student. And my aunt, April, April Best, who works in the school, another person I look up to and, and who helped me figure out how to juggle both worlds, um, she introduced Ruby to me and, and, and told Ruby to try out for cheerleading. And first thing Ruby said was, I'm not trying out for cheerleading because that's that cop's cheerleading squad. And she refused. And April said, no, I am telling you, Wendy is not like that. And Ruby didn't believe it. And April said, Ruby, please, she's not like that. And Ruby's thought was, she's going to cut me anyway because of who my brother is, and she was involved in the arrest of my brother. Ruby came to cheerleading. Ruby tried out. Ruby made the cheerleading squad. Ruby's grades went up. Ruby became one of the most closest friends I now have and looks to me like a mother or an aunt figure today. So I had to shut off being that police officer and I always keep the coaching because that connection is, is deeper. And that's the avenue then into my police world. Yeah, Wendy, can you talk about maybe a little bit of how the coaching influences your policing? Because for me, that would be, uh, I don't know, seeing how those two cross and blend would be really interesting to see from a coach's perspective. So how does the coaching influence my policing? In what way do you mean? Um, just in, in kind of your mindset. I mean, of, of, you know, you, whether you're approaching some citizens, you're approaching, you know, a bad situation. How does mm -hmm. the coaching aspect influence your policing in, in, in certain situations? Well, what helped was I actually was a coach before I was a police officer. Okay. I coached at Sleepy Hollow High School prior. I was assisting and helping out with um, the varsity coach then at the time. And I was coaching the Little League um, Wolfpack cheerleaders at the time who were younger. But the way it helped me in police world is with coaching, you are dealing, especially when you're dealing, and, and listen, and I've coached plenty, plenty of sports at Sleepy Hollow High School and even throughout the village. I coached the, the youth softball team. I even coached varsity basketball for one season at the high school and I coached modified softball. And then I'm around the football players. I, I've been around that football program probably since I, I, you know, could walk. But one thing I've learned through coaching is the different attitudes, especially coaching females, the different attitudes, the different personalities, the different drama that comes day by day with adolescents, you know, um, the different issues that they have at home. And some that you don't realize, you think the person just has an attitude, but you don't realize that daddy came home drunk last night and, and mommy had to stay home, stay up all night and try and make it to work and try and get them to school while daddy's laying on the couch. And this girl is now groggy and has an attitude in school. She doesn't have an attitude just because she's a female and you know her boyfriend broke up with her or it's that time of the month. You know, it, it's no, that's not the reason. You've got to dig deeper and dealing with these athletes and getting to, to realize that there's different personalities and you have to deal with everybody individually because they're not all the same. And each day is not the same, even with the same person. So you have to learn how to deal with that. And you guys know as coaches, you have, you have your star player that can come in and have a whole different mood one day, right? And, and, and that's the same thing. So the way you apply that to policing is every day is not going to be the same. Every person you deal with, even if you deal with them every day, it's not going to be the same. What helps is the relationship you form with them from the beginning. Because that's your leverage. 
And I think that's what a lot of police officers have to realize. That's going to be your leverage, whether it's with coaching, policing, that's going to be your leverage when someone you meet for the first time sees that they can trust you, that you understand them, and that you care. Forget the law. They know they broke it. You know? <laughs> they know they broke it. But now their thing is, oh, man, how, how, how is she going to react to this? I've had people hold the beer up to me, you know, uh, as I'm driving by court, red-handed with the beer, and I'll stop the car and just give them the look, the look that your mother gives you when you're caught doing something. <laughs> I give them that look. And they poured it out right there, right in front of me and go, I'm sorry, Wendy. My, my bad. That, that's where I think the coaching did help with the policing because you have to recognize that even as people get older, not just teenagers, but people do act different from day to day and you have to adapt. You have to, you have to be able to, to, to adapt and, and change just a little bit in, in your approach and in how you deal with them. So coach, coaching was a huge benefit. And the parents, let's not forget the parents, <laughs> you know, with coaching, right? You deal with the parents yeah. who can be outraged. Well, you guess what? In policing, you're dealing with people who one second are happy and the next second they're bugging out. That is, I mean, like, until you just said that, I didn't even really think of it. But, yeah, I mean, me, me and Dave – uh, have have heard from a lot of leaders in a lot of different roles and responsibilities and lead in very different ways. And one of the things is like, if everyone's happy, you're probably not doing a, your job. That's right. Um, not to say that like the world we live in today is perfect with policing. I don't, I don't think that's, that's the case, but um there is to some degree, like you're doing your job perfectly and someone's going to be pissed. That's right. You can't make everyone happy. And, and even to get back to what's going on with you know, George Floyd and, and, and Breonna Taylor and all these things that have happened um, nationwide, people have to realize that you, we have an obligation we have a total obligation as a community to not only hold officers accountable who are not doing the right thing and purposely choose not to do the right thing. People are going to make mistakes. Officers are going to make mistakes. I have a lot of other friends in other departments who are great officers and you're going to, you're going to make a mistake because we are human and we're going to make mistakes question is, did you do it on purpose? Are you doing these things deliberately? Are you going out there with malice, you know, with hate in your heart, with an agenda? And there are some that are. A group that are, they have to be held accountable because they're making the other group like myself look, look like we're part of that, you know, and, and, and people hate all of us. They hate all of us. Be, and, and it goes the other way, too. Someone said this to me. It was a cousin of mine. She, she posted something and she said to me, um, you know, the same way people think that, you know, you, you can't say that one bad cop makes a thousand cops look bad is the same way you can't say one bad black man makes a thousand black men look bad. You know, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, that's true. Yeah. And I, I think the community has to get more involved. I think that they have to speak up more, not be afraid to speak up more. And I think some of the community members need to understand that even people like myself, sometimes this racism that's experienced between community members and police officers, sometimes we as African-American, listen, I'm Black, my dad is African-American, my mom is Puerto Rican, so I'm Black. But sometimes our racism is also experienced from within. Uh-huh. And we're fighting sometimes the fight from within. Uh-huh. Well, I'll tell you, Wendy, like that, um, like that is like the real, real dialogue that is happening, I think, behind closed doors. Um, you know, one of my best friends growing up is a cop in Asening, and he's, he's a white man. And uh, he's enraged because he grew up my brother. Like, he's like, what the fuck is going on out here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in his shoes... 
it's almost uh, he he made a really like unbelievable point and just educated the shit out of me on like, hey, like the problem. Like, he's like, yeah, there are police that are a problem. He's like, the problem is that those police who have been acknowledged that are a problem are not being held accountable. Um, not being dealt with. And not just I'm not talking about like somebody kills somebody and they should be charged. That's the easy one. I'm talking about the dude who has 30 complaints and, you know, it's kind of getting swept under the rug. He's a good Mm -hmm. guy. We know him, blah, blah, blah. He's like, those little ones, he's like, those are the ones that we need to catch because then nothing, he's like, then nothing happens like this. Um, And I think he recognizes that, I mean, there's so many layers to it, but he's like, number one, like, I've hung out with predominantly people of color my entire life. So I never recognized. He's like, now I'm a cop. He's like, and now people look at me funny because I don't walk around with my resume of who my people are. They just see me as a white cop. Uh, So it it, it has so many layers, but I do think that the the dialogue continues to be powerful from the people who are willing to have it. Um, What I want to talk about is, so you're in this role now. You're a leader, um, not just in your community, but you're a leader in your department. And that's what I want to talk about now, because you were the first female cop in Sleepy Hollow. And now... uh, No, first female, first African-American female. Oh, we had had a female before. I believe I'm the third or fourth female in history, but I'm the first African-American female for for the village of Sleepy Hollow. Hired in 2007. So look what that tells you. Yeah, we're slow. You know, look at, <laughs> we're not talking about hired in 1988, 1991. In 2007, and I am the first African-American female hired. Well, I don't, I can't remember. I mean, obviously I didn't know that, but I'm imagining that at no time in Sleepy Hollow Police Department history were there multiple female cops at one time. Would that be true? There was always one at a time. Um, There was one Puerto Rican female back in the 80s. There was mid to late 80s. There was uh, another Puerto Rican female who then transferred to another village. Wepa. And then, I'm sorry? I said (laughs) Wepa. Puerto Rican's holding it down. That was for your mom, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had to throw Ida a bone uh, on the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> and then there was a, a a white woman, a Caucasian woman from the village. Um, she also uh, used to be a police officer for the village as well. And then there was me. And and I and in 2007, I'm the first black female hired by um, the village of Sleepy Hollow. And and now we currently have four at one time, and we've never had more than more than one at one time. And we currently now have four. So I do I do I take credit for that? Um, yes and no, because I didn't make take the test. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I, didn't, I didn't take the test for them, and I also didn't, you know, beat down their doors telling them to go take the test. Um, these young ladies are much younger than I am, but I do like to think that women like me, throughout many departments at some point has influenced somebody, some female to take the exam. I know that I've done that with even some of the men we have there currently, one of them being your brother, you know, who always wanted to be an officer and, and just pushing um, our recent hire, Julio, you know, I had him in as, as a youth cadet and I knew him from football, you know, and, and that's the other thing. These guys would see me come up to a football game. I'd be coaching one second and then standing in a uniform 30 minutes later mm-hmm. at the same game mm-hmm. because I have to go to work. And I'd be standing by the cheerleaders with a uniform on, you know, <laughs> wearing two hats at one time, calling out cheers and then surveillancing the, the property at the same time. But, you know, do I take credit? No, listen, I don't want to take total credit, but I do think that, especially coming from the lower village, um, people seeing someone like me who quote-unquote, made it out. It's like, wow, she can do it, I can do it. I, I dropped off one of my co-workers last night um, to her house, and she lived in 100 College. 
and we got off midnight last night, and she said, yo, Wendy, right? I said, yeah, and I drove her down the street, and as she was getting out the car, the first thing, you know, she, I, I watched as, as, you know, it's like, a, it's like when you take a woman out on a date, here I am, I'm like her man, I'm watching her, and she's walking <laughs> down the street lobby i made sure she got in the elevator you know <laughs> and, then, and then i i pulled off you know but um as i was pulling off i thought to myself wow this is the first time in a long time that almost every or not almost every but but a high majority of the officers from the village live in what would be considered the most urban area of the village I, I mean, I, I can tell you that, like, I think from Houston, I feel the effects of, of that. And I think people are, are well connected, you know, um, or better connected. So to me, the question is, what does leadership look like in the locker room uh, amongst the, the, the female officers? Because I imagine they're looking to you. They're going, hey, when? Like, how, how do I deal with this? Or I need this piece of equipment or, cause it, I mean, yeah. it's a whole nother road that female officers have to travel. You know, it, it, with us though, because we're a small village, um, we're, you know, what people have to understand is we're not a Mount Vernon, we're not a Yonkers or a White Plains um, where you have 10, 15, maybe 20 people changing at one time in a big locker room. Um, being that there are only four of us. And, and I don't mean only cause we're the big four. Okay. We are the big four. Better watch um, out. They better watch out. We're not all in the same squad. They have us staggered so that each squad does have a female um, to represent that squad. They also couldn't put us all together because then we all can't fit in the locker room. We have a very small locker room. Um, so, you know, we are, we are staggered. But, you know, do they come for advice? Yeah. You know, luckily one of them, she, she's with the fire department, both of them actually with the fire department and ambulance corps. So they've already been around policing, you know, and they've, and they've been around radio calls. Uh, one of the young ladies, her father is a longtime police officer. So she's been around him. Um, I'm sure she can definitely get more guidance from him than me. But as a female, uh, one of the things that I did share with her and I did share with, um, with, with Lasani, uh, the Dominican female, was that you, you have to stay strong mentally and physically. And there's a, there's a huge importance in that because, listen, let's face it, the average man is probably stronger than the average woman, right? You know, and we're tested more. We're completely tested more because when people come on scene, the first person they think they can take out is the female cop. So we have to have our, our head on swivel just a little more. And we have to pay attention more and be ready. So that's one of the things that I do tell even the females in the Youth Police Academy when I was doing that, when I was instructing there. And I still meet, I still meet for lunch with girls from my academy class who work in various departments throughout Westchester. We, we meet once a month or once every two months. We stay connected. We compare stories. And we always say, and, and when, don't, let me tell you, when one of us is gaining weight, we tell each other. We do. It, it's not about, it's <laughs> <laughs> To be vain, it's not, oh, girl, you want to be, you know, summer ready. It's not all that. No, it's, it's. are you staying in the gym? You staying strong? Because if not, somebody's going to beat your ass out there. They're going to come after you first. You know, so we do encourage each other that you have to stay strong because we're in a man's world. We're trying to make it equal, but it's hard. We are in a man's world. And we're, and, and, and we're in a white man's world. Because the average police officer nationwide is white. So white male. So not only are we competing with men, but we're, we're competing with, with, with white men who are viewed as, as, as more of an authoritative figure by the public eye. And I've experienced that. I've gone on some calls um, in certain areas of the village where my coworker, who is a white male, gets more respect than I do. Or, or spoken to, even by some Hispanics, because most Hispanics, their thing is, you know, they, they talk to a man, not a woman. And me being Hispanic can kind of understand that, but me being an officer, I don't want to understand that. You know? Um, and, and they'll say, they'll, they'll, they'll look right over me, they'll look past me and act like I'm not there. And, and they'll say, you know, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to him. Wow. Blatantly. 
So, you know, there's, there's competition. And, and as women, we have to stay strong mentally, emotionally, physically. When did you feel like as the first female uh, African-American in, um, in the police department in Sleepy Hollow, do you feel like there's like you're held to a higher standard or do you feel like you're all eyes are on you? Is that tough as, you know, does that get burdening to you? Um, or do you take that and, and feel like you make it your own and make it okay. I, I have to be the gold standard. How do you, how does, how does that process for you? Either way, I feel like I have to, um, you know, watch what I do because I am held to a higher standard and, and, and it took growth took maturity because I was hired young, you know, and, and you make mistakes, but thank God for growth and maturity where, you know, I do realize and, and recognize, okay, you can't probably shouldn't do that. and can't do that <laughs> because, you know, people are going to say, and she's a cop, but um, if anyone knows me knows that I don't have a filter, you know, I, I, I speak what it is. And when I'm in uniform, I have to try and I have to, I have to try and turn on that filter and, and, and I've learned and I've matured um, as far as being held to a higher standard because of my, ethnicity or being the only, you know, the first African-American, ironically, a lot of people don't know that. Hmm. A lot of people in this village see me and know I'm the only black female in Sleepy Hollow, but they don't know the history and know that I'm the first. So, so they don't know the difference. Um, do I hold myself to a higher standard because I am from a certain area in the village that's looked down upon, yeah, I have to. And sometimes people in that area of the village look at me like I forgot where I came from, you know, because I'm a cop now. I'm not one of them. And it took a long time to make them understand that, you know, listen, when I take my uniform off, I'm black. When I put my uniform on, I'm still black. (laughs) 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 So, it took a long time even for my own people to trust me and realize, you know what, Wendy, Wendy's not here to harm us. She's going to help us. But if I, if I act up, she's also going to lock my black ass up. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really interesting because we talk a lot about growth and having a growth mindset and, and you going through as, as, a, as a young female to now, you know, a more mature female in in your profession i think that's across the board that if you take that growth mindset i know i've made tons of mistakes as a as a young coach being you know whether you know going after a kid too hard um you know using the correct language Mm -hmm. um i think you know it's funny that that is across the board no matter where you are that growth if you take that growth mindset and you realize you learn from your mistakes and don't beat yourself up about them I think that that growth process can become so um, influential in your in your profession and your your kind of progress within it Um, can you speak to kind of maybe some of the mistakes I know you've mentioned a few but um, you know, leadership wise that you've made that maybe now you look back on and you're thankful for because you've realized that, okay, I can't do that. I need to be better. But now, it, it, you know, you can impart that knowledge on, on those behind you. Um, look, but I'll get myself into total trouble now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some, some of the mistakes um, coming up probably would be my mouth, my mouth, and, and realizing that if um, if someone calls you a name, probably can't call them one back. <laughs> you know? It's probably not the best thing to do. <laughs> um, fortunate for me, I, I didn't make huge mistakes that would have caused me to obviously be newsworthy, you know, or um, do something that would harm somebody. Thank God, you know, thank God for that and thank god for for judgment um even when someone pulled a knife out on me and 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 according to the police academy the the way this guy pulled his knife out on me big butcher knife i would have had every reason to shoot him and i did not and i used the fact that i was a cheerleading coach because i coached his sister to gain leverage 
and just kept talking to him. Meanwhile, my partner's like, are you out of your mind? Because in the academy, someone pulled, you know, they're teaching us if someone pulls a knife out like that at that distance, this kid, this kid was arm's length from me and could have filleted me like a fish. All right. And, and I chose to do that. But again, wisdom, experience, um, I think that what, what, where I've grown is my mouth. It's my attitude. It's, um, you know, learning that you get more bees with, what is it, with honey than you do uh, yeah. <laughs> with <laughs> You know, like, I, I just learned that um, the more approachable you are and, and, and even smiling. I had somebody tell me one day, I don't think I've ever seen an officer smile, you know, and I started wearing lipstick on purpose. Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to. <laughs> there you go again Wendy just towing the line I don't know if I'm supposed to but I did I started wearing um, shades because I wanted to pronounce my lips more so that you can see my smile is that not crazy you know, I, and one day I thought about it I said this guy told me wow I don't think I've ever seen like an officer just smile at people and I was like huh I'm going to make my lips a little more noticeable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The growth for me, it definitely came from um, just realizing that you, you, when you put that uniform on, you can't, I can't be the Wendy brand that I was growing up on Cortland Street. You know, and, and in the beginning, putting on my uniform, when you, when you attacked me with your words, I was ready to attack you back with mine. And you can't. Damn. Um... One of the things I wanted to get to was like the uh, the intersection of of all of your identity and and how you lead in all of those areas. Um, so obviously, we talked about the coach, we talked about the cop, we've talked about being black, we've talked about being a female. You and know, then I'm a mother. Not you're a mom. You mm-hmm. are you're Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. You know you are you are you are. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how do you know which hat to be wearing when, and and how do they differ for you? So that's another thing that took time, um, and maturity was learning how to take off some of those hats. Um, being a coach, I'm always going to be a coach. I'm not actively coaching right now at the high school. Uh, my sister and I coached there for about 10 years, and we resigned about two or three years ago. We retired about two or three years ago. <laughs> Let's use that yeah. word. We retired. You hung up the pom-poms for the last time. Yes, but um, these girls know that I'm still their coach. I, I have been getting text messages like you wouldn't believe in the last couple of days from cheerleaders that I've expected to get them from and from some that I would have never expected to get them from. Some of them saying, thank you. You're my hero. I looked up to you, you know, and and this is from a white cheerleader who is from an affluent, very affluent community in the, in the village, you know, who could, who can buy anything she wants. And she says to me, you are my hero. You represent, women and black women and I'm proud to know you and I was like wow that's fire Wendy you still with us getting some silence and and be able to be that mom and that wife I had to learn to uh, hang up the police hat at work and leave it at work. So when I'm off duty, I'm off duty. Does not mean I won't help you. Does not mean that if I see something, I'm not going to act because, you know, we have to. And of course I would. I would never see anybody get hurt and not intervene in some way. But I did have to learn to hang that up um, when I'm with family and when I have family time. Because sometimes it can it can cause a little bit of, of rift and strife, 
You know, you don't want your kids saying, you're always thinking like a cop. And then you don't want your husband saying, you know, you're always bringing work home. In the same way, my cheerleaders don't want to hear me being a cop at cheerleading practice. So, I, you know, I do have to, I did learn and, and I do um, hang up the hats when need be. You know, when I'm at the volleyball game, I'm not a cop. I'm, I'm Timmy's mom watching her play volleyball. You know, when I'm coaching, I'm the coach. Um, you know, we're approaching an hour here and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, okay. Look, I know where to go and I have to be work till later. <laughs> Four to 12 tonight. I, uh, um, all right. Well, Dave, do you have anything else you wanted to touch on? Yeah. I just, I always ask, you know, as a leader and being organized and, and making sure you're taking care of your people. I always ask all of our guests, like, what do you do to, to, to make sure that you're organized, whether we've had some people on here that journal, that vision board, you know, making sure they're hitting their goals. Is there anything you can share for our listeners to kind of what you, uh, what you do and how you do it um, that maybe could, could, we could take from you? I do nothing. <laughs> you mean better? <laughs> That's no, awesome. I, I am being honest. I, I don't journal um, or, or like you said, a vision board or anything like that. I, I let the day come and see what happens with that day. Ronnie knows that could be very spontaneous. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but no, I don't. I, I don't. Um, because with this, the thing is, and I don't know what other guests you've had on your show, but with this profession, um, and, and, and even being a leader in this profession, there is really no planning because you don't know what's going to happen day to day. We, you know, we, you don't know what's going to happen every other minute in this job. What I can do outside the profession is just continue to be in there for the people, being there for my community and letting them know I'm there. I've reached out to members of the community after this last thing with um, George Floyd and I let them know and they know, but I, I just have to say it again. And it was just various members of the community that I, that I inboxed or I texted and said, you guys know me, you know, where I, you know where I stand, and you know how to reach me if you need me. To let them know that they can still reach me, they can still come to me. And these are adults. These aren't even kids. The kids know. The kids, in their mind, I will never go away. I'm always going to be here. And that's awesome. But sometimes adults feel as though you know, wow, Wendy's in a tough spot. I'm not going to bother her right now. No, bother me. Bother me. Call me, text me, inbox me, DM me, whatever you need to do if you have a concern um, regarding this village. If you have a concern that you want to bring to the chief's attention, I'll guide you. I'll tell you where to go. I'll, I'll give you his email, you know, um, but as far as planning, no, I don't, I don't plan anything. I just, I just let, I just let the day go and see where it takes me. Well, I know for me, um, you know, I think as we kind of wrap this up for you, um, two things, one, uh, you minimize the last part of the kids will always know I'm there. Um, that is, uh, you've worked your ass off to get to that point and the connections that you made to make them feel that way. So don't ever let that go. Just, they know because, uh, you've done that work. So I appreciate that. And I know how hard that is, especially with the kids to, get them to trust you and come back to you. Um, So that's awesome. Uh, I love that. And then two, from my perspective, being uh, from my, you know, Navy background and everything else, uh, I just appreciate, you know, how much you do and the connections that you make and, you know, whether the uniform is on or off, um, I think, uh, you know, you make a difference in your community. And I think that's something that whether what's whatever side you're on, you can strive to do um, in your own way. And, um, you know, that's something special and something that you should be recognized for and, and thankful. I hope, uh, they do thank you on your, your shift today from four to 12. <laughs> you get some thanks because, uh, um, we in Houston certainly recognize that and, and, uh, we're so thankful for what you do on a daily basis. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, when. Can I say something else? Please, please do. One of the things I, I, 
I don't know who your listeners are, Ronnie. I'm sure you have an array of people from Sleepy Hollow and wrestlers and football players that are probably tuning in. Um, one of the things I'd like to say to the young people of Sleepy Hollow, especially the ones of color, is take these exams. Take these police exams. Take the correctional exams. Be a voice in your community. Ask how you can be on the police advisory, com- um, police advisory committee for the community, because there is one. Ask how you can be on the high school advisory committee um, if you're in high school, you have to be more involved than just when an incident happens. You know, when, when the young man was um, uh, murdered in the park a couple of years ago, uh, the boardroom at Village Hall, it was standing room only. You couldn't get in there because everyone was outraged. Everyone of color was outraged. People were outraged. You could not get in that boardroom. And it's not like that anymore. And what I've noticed over the many years is that when there is a tragedy, that's when everyone bands together and and comes together. And I just want to say to the community, don't wait until the next tragedy. You need to come together now. You need to join some organizations. Create your own organization. You know, there's nothing wrong with creating your own organization for your neighborhood, you know, so that you guys are monitoring your neighborhood, taking care of your neighborhood, maybe have a representative from your neighborhood that's reaching out to the board members of the school or the the village um, trustee, mayor, and the police chief. And the same with the kids. You know, people are always saying, oh, but if you go to this neighborhood, the officers are always white. If you go over here, there's no black officers or there's no black sergeant. There's no black chief. There's no black lieutenant. Well, there won't be one if you don't take the exam because now you're not even part of the selection. If you don't take a police exam, if you don't take a corrections exam, a probation, or anything else in law enforcement, how do you expect more people of color in these positions if more people of color are not taking these exams? So you have to be counted. You know, you you have to put yourself in the runnings and and make yourself be included, be part of the the selection process. You can't be selected from sitting on your couch and not taking the exam. And the same goes with the community. Get involved demand more police presence, demand more meetings and more interaction with um, village officials and, and police officers. Because I'm down, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to go down there and sit as a, as a community member, as a, a, let me think, five or six generations of North Tarrytown since the 1950s, you know, and um, also as a police officer, I'm down. So that's, that's just what I want to say to everybody. Well, when, uh, as expected, you fucking killed it. Fired up that you were Thank on. You. And, I, and I didn't awesome. curse that much either. You know that? I know. I tried to make up for your curses, so I threw some more. You did. <laughs> yes. um, you know, I, I had like one pinky in the air. You know when you drink your tea with one pinky? <laughs> I was trying, you know. But no, I really, I, I didn't curse as much. I'm trying to respect my, my teenagers that are probably going to tune in, you know? All right, well, I ruined that, so I'm sorry. You sure did. Tio Ronnie coming in for another one. Um, all right, Wendy. Well, uh, we, we appreciate it. This was awesome. This was Lucky to Lead, Episode 8. Uh, 